Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today, we're taking you through the best bits of how will you measure your life by the powerful trio, Clayton Christensen, Karen Dillon, and James Allworth, finding fulfillment using lessons from some of the world's greatest businesses. Clayton Christensen tells a story of how he had finished his Harvard MBA in 1979 and five years later had his five-year reunion. He was looking around the room. Everyone was looking pretty sharp, pretty dapper, pretty polished, pretty well-groomed, and they were just all had a lot of things to celebrate. They were doing extremely well. They'd come out of Harvard's MBA program as you know, some of the brightest talents available. They were all killing it with great jobs. Some were working in exotic locations. A lot of them had also managed to marry uh, great spouses who were also killing it in their realm as well. And everybody just seemed to be just having the absolutely fantastic life on every level. Well, as, they, as they seem to do pretty good. At, at reunions. <laughs> Some people probably putting it on a bit. Yeah. Like I think I told you I had a uh, mate who was a year level above me. He hired a Lamborghini mm. for the 10 year Not a Lamb. It was a Ferrari. Sorry. <laughs> salt and pepper there. But just revving the Ferrari at the front and came out with a Ferrari hat like he was killing it. Some people do a bit of that. But a bit different 10 years into it because the 10 year reunion, uh, there was a new trend that was sort of starting to take place. A number of the classmates that Clay was looking forward to catching up and having a beer with didn't even rock up to the 10 year reunion because uh, he got on the phone during the week and tried to find out why. Turned out they were doing very, very well in their careers and it was somewhat all consuming. They were becoming executives in firms like McKinsey & Co. and Goldman Sachs. Um, some were successful entrepreneurs already. Some were filling successful spots in the companies of Fortune 500 companies. So their careers were, were killing it and I guess that's why they weren't at the reunions. And as the reunions every five years got on and on and on, things seemed to get a little bit worse and worse and worse. On one hand, professionally, Whilst these people, they were the brightest people that Clayton had ever met. They were also the most decent people he'd ever met. They were killing it in their professional lives, but their personal lives, something would seem to be missing. Some of those uh, awesome marriages were no longer so awesome and probably had come to an end. Uh, even one bloke found himself in jail, the ex-CEO of Enron, who was in his class. So whilst professionally people were doing so well, they kind of missed out on the personal elements. So essentially, one of the big traps that people end up in is having that all-consuming career where it takes all your focus and all your resources, but in doing so, a lot of your personal lives sort of turn to shit. And uh, understanding what causes these problems and what are the really the, the, the lures of some of these traps of what happened to his classmates and what can happen to all of us means that we can plan our path forward and plan where we want our journey to, to be ending up in the next decades to come few questions you've got to ask yourself. How can I be sure that I'll be successful and happy in my career? How can I be sure that my relationships with my spouse, my children, my extended family, my close friends are going to become enduring sources of happiness? How can I be sure that I can live a life of integrity and stay out of jail? They're pretty simple questions. The problem is almost nobody ever asks themselves these. When you were 10 years old and someone asked you what you wanted to be when you grew up, anything seems possible. An astronaut, an archaeologist, a firefighter, a professional sports player. Your answers were kind of guided simply by what you thought would make you happy and there were no limits. And out of the population, of course, there's going to be a couple of people or a certain percentage. You never lose sight of aspiring to do something what's meaningful. I mean, as you get a bit older, it's not about all about being a firefighter or baseball player, but I guess that, that search for meaning is something that you know people stick to for their whole lives and some of us find it. However, a good majority of us, we let the years go by allowing our dreams of finding that awesome career, which is fully meaningful, um, let it be peeled away. 
and we sort of begin to accept it's not realistic in mm. uh, parentheses there to do something that you actually truly love for a living. I mean, that's mm. not a possible dream. It's a pipe dream. Yeah, it's important to at least start to think about that. Think about the things that are going to motivate you in your career. Uh, and it's a, there's an important distinction of what things can motivate you. One is what he calls hygiene factors. So the hygiene factors, they're the things like status, compensation, job security, work conditions, company policies, and supervisory practices. Like These are kind of like the, the basic entry level. These are sort of pass or fail. Uh, it's important that you have a manager that doesn't manipulate and bully you like you just you need to tick that box. But at the same time, once you've ticked that box, you know, doubling the salary doesn't really double your happiness or you're not suddenly going to, if you have this massive status increase, you're not suddenly going to love a job that you used to hate. Yeah, at the very best, you're not going to hate it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're gonna, you probably will hate your job if you're getting paid shit or if you're unsafe or if you're getting micromanaged or your company policies make everything just a disaster. You're not going to hate it. But once those things are removed, all right, we're done with that. We can move on. We're basically getting to that entry mm. level, what you need for a, a successful career. So that's just the tick or cross. You need to tick all those boxes. But beyond that, the things that really motivate you are going to be things outside of that realm. That's things like challenging work, recognition, responsibility, personal growth, like the feeling that you're making a meaningful contribution, they come from inside yourself. They're the intrinsic conditions. It's not about the job itself. It's not about what's written on the job description or it's not about what's getting put into your bank account every pay week. It's really about the things coming from intrinsically. So these motivators are the things that you're going to love your jobs. Quite different to the hygiene factors that is the entry-level benchmark to uh, not hate your job. So uh, many of us in our careers, what we do actually and where we could make a mistake is choosing and prioritizing for hygiene factors as our primary criteria that we're going for. Like the classic one out of that is cash, making as much money as you can. Uh, again, there's been plenty of research to show that there is diminishing returns on that to a point where as soon as you get to the level of hygiene factor where you've got a comfortable level of income just to get by, beyond that doesn't really mean much because the things that do mean much are those motivators like you said, Ashdo, recognition, responsibility, personal growth, these intrinsic things. There's that old saying, you know, you find a job you love and you'll never work a day in your life. Just one of those nice things that gets put on the quote cards on Instagram or maybe just like the on the calendar, you'll see it written at the bottom somewhere and you think, oh, that's a nice thing, a nice thing to aim for. But kind of what the hell does that really mean? How do you actually do that? It's a bit of a pipe dream for a lot of people. If you think about it, like uh, how many times do we step back and think, all right, how are we going to approach our career? How are we going to actually uh, optimize it just so we're getting the most out of it? I mean, how much time is in it? 40 or 50 hours a week? What's that as a percentage, Ashto? Well, I think there's a the stat is like it's 80,000 hours of your life is is working. Yeah, well, that's a good chunk of it. Think about you're going <laughs> to cark it one day and then uh, you might as well make that uh, to be as good possible and even more so than that, taking a step back to actually strategizing mm. to make the most out of that at 80,000 hours. So to get a bit of a taste of strategy, let's go with a bit of a story. We'll go with Honda. When Honda first popped into the American market in the 1960s, Honda's management thought, you know what? The US, there's a fair few people over there that seem to be doing pretty well. They've all got a bit of money, a bit of cash to splash around. So let's head over and try to crack that market. The US at the time, the motorbike market was dominated by Harley and Triumph, you know, the big big Harley Davidsons, 
big chubby dudes with with uh, handlebar moustaches uh, rolling around. Actually, I probably don't want to say too many bad things about bikies, um, <laughs> but they were dominating it. And the Honda's plan was to just pop in there and just take a little slice of the action. So they thought, all right, we're going to take just 10% of the market from the Europeans. Um, but this goal, which was relatively a big goal, just go in there and just take over, it almost killed Honda because uh, their motorcycle was a bit like a poor man's <laughs> bicycle, they're saying. So the large cycles didn't really uh, work and their, their whole entire um, their purpose and what they went over to do, it didn't really work out. However, something else sort of happened which you know made Honda successful in this market. What they did was in the shipments of the big bikes they were trying to compete with the Harleys, that also just sent over a few of their little bikes as well. The little bikes known as the Super Cubs in Japan, they were used uh, for delivery bikes just to you know zip around the busy urban streets. But people thought, oh, no one's actually going to want to ride these other than the Japanese delivery drivers. But then uh, one of the employees thought, okay, I'm just going to jump on and run a few errands around around town. And they thought, well, that's all it's ever going to be used for. There's nothing really in this aside from just darting around from place to place. Then on the weekends, this bloke started to take it out uh, with the, you know, taking out off-road journeying with people. And then his mates came and they thought, this is a pretty perfect bike to actually go off-road on the weekends mm. and, you know, camping and all that. Then from there, the word of mouth took over and this thing that just started off as just a, a silly little thing to do on weekends ended up being Honda's entry into the market. Mm. And this is something they could not possibly anticipate at the very start, that these off-road trips on the weekend will be the catalyst to, for them to take over the market. And of course, the rest is history because they started there with this very small, tiny slice of the market, well below 10%. But from there... Uh, this opportunity allowed Honda to grow into the business that we know today. That's right. You're never going to take your big, heavy, shiny, fancy, expensive Harley that looks really nice. You're never going to take that jumping over hills. But this little tiny piece of shit, Super Cub, then you can really thrash it around, you know, darting back and forth, up and down sand dunes. It seems like a lot of fun. It was a completely new industry that they hadn't really planned for. It just kind of happened or you might say just kind of emerged. Yeah. Well, uh, well done there, Asho, because they're the two different strategies that we can take in business, just like the two different strategies that we can take into our career. The first uh, way, which I guess Honda initially went in there, was with a deliberate strategy. This is where we anticipate what the problems and the opportunities are. We know exactly what's going to happen, so we make a deliberate plan about what we're going to do with our career, and we sort of stick to it as best we can, maybe make little tweaks and pivots here, but in essence, we have a deliberate plan and we stick to it. The other approach is the emergent strategy. That's when something completely, some unanticipated problem or an unanticipated opportunity pops up and you adapt accordingly, and you think, okay, well, here's this little thing over here. I might... Uh, this emergent strategy might pop up. That's when Honda, it popped up that people enjoyed going around on the weekend through the jungle and up and down hills and stuff on these tiny little bikes. I thought, oh, maybe there's something to this. And so their deliberate strategy got replaced with this emergent strategy. So there's a few things we can learn from this Honda story here. I mean, if Honda is a bit like your career, you can you can come in and know exactly what you're doing 10 years like Honda did originally. But Honda sort of tweaked and tinkered with things on the little size on the weekends and before they knew it, their whole strategy changed from something to emerge out of nothing. Now, for your career, it can take that same trajectory as well because what you play with and do little things on the sides and, and trying new things and tweaking new things, before you know it, that could end up being your whole career change and you know what is once your emergent strategy becomes into a mm. deliberate strategy. 
often at the start, people like to think or people think that they have to have this deliberate strategy. You know, the high, everyone's asking, what do you want to do when you grow up? So the, the kid thinks, okay, well, I've got to have a bit of a plan here. You turn 15, 16, you're approaching the end of high school. You've got to know, okay, well, what job do I want? What university course do I want to study? What sort of path do I want to take? You think it has to be all mapped out. Your study has to be mapped out. Your career progression, climbing the ladder has to be mapped out. There's a lot of pressure there to have this perfect deliberate strategy that lines up all the way to you becoming the top dog at the end of the day. Absolutely. And you probably find out that at the very start, due to external pressures, they're probably like full of hygiene factors. Mm. Remember, what we're looking for is both hygiene factors and motivators. Now, if you got those two things already in your career, I mean, it's a pretty bloody good career. That's, yeah. They're the two things that you need to have a successful, happy and meaningful career and you're probably going to get paid uh, pretty well for it as well. If this is what you got, then probably a deliberate approach mm. makes the most sense because you've found something that uh, not everybody gets to experience in their careers, but very different story. If you haven't found both of those things yet, then perhaps an emergent strategy is still the key. That's right. If you haven't worked out exactly what it is that lights you up and if you haven't got to the place where you've got a, a great job that ticks all the boxes and motivates you as well, then you're going to have to be on the lookout. That's where the emergent strategy, you're going to have to look up for the things that pop up that you can take advantage of. Often people can get caught in the trap of going straight for the hygiene factors only. If you think about it, you've got this big student debt that's piling up, maybe you've got a maybe you've got a, a partner, maybe you've got kids, maybe you've got a, a dog that you've got to look after and you think, oh, okay, well, I'm going to have to take this job just for a year or two just so I can get on top of my finances. All of a sudden, like, okay, well, I'm getting a nice, nice pay packet here. I've just got a promotion. I'm getting more money. I'll just do it for another year. Then I'll start to find something I want. The problem is you keep kind of pushing these other things down the list and you get stuck in the hygiene factors only. What we need to do if we find ourselves caught in that is remember the emergent strategy. Remember that there, there is something that you want to head towards. You want to head towards the point where you're ticking the boxes, the hygiene factors, but also maximizing the motivation. In order to do that, you probably just got to, you know, just pull up a bit, just take a bit of a breather, look at the path that you're heading down, look at your current deliberate strategy and think, okay, maybe can I look to the left or look to the right and see what other things might emerge that, that can actually get me closer to my end goal. I think that, I think most people don't think about it, do they? They just kind of get stuck in the, yeah, I'll just keep doing this, I'll just keep doing this. There's no planning, there's no strategy, there's no thinking about what's the next step going to be. The book uses business metaphors really about how we can uh, make decisions in our life. And of course, from a business point of view, there's different ways we can make investments into different strategies that become our lives. So think about it, we've got resources firstly. We've got the time, energy, our talent, and our wealth, and we use these resources to put them into several businesses or processes in our personal life. I mean, you might choose to have a rewarding relationship with your spouse or significant other. You might choose to put all your resources to succeed in your career or raise great children or contribute to the community or just you know sit on the couch and watch Netflix. Whatever you, you basically spend your resources on is what your lives ends up being. And unfortunately, as with pretty much everything, resources, they're finite and they're limited, but the potential opportunities are seemingly unlimited. The things that we want to do seem to just go on forever, but of course, we need to be a little bit intentional and a little bit strategic about how we invest those resources in those different business opportunities that pop up, business opportunities, of course, being the things you listed. That's it. The danger of higher achieving people, though, is that unconsciously, you'll allocate your resources to activities that... Uh, yield the most tangible, immediate sort mm. of accomplishments. A lot of the time, it isn't going to be taking your kid to the baseball or the soccer. That's not going to give you a big, uh, immediate 
achievement for a lot of people, but for some of them, it might be like shipping a product, finishing a design, helping a patient, closing a sale, teaching a class, winning a case, publishing a paper. These are the sort of things that seem to grab most of the high achievers' attention in their career, especially the ones in the clay from his older 10 to 20-year high school reunions. As with most things, we tend to overweight our investment towards the things that give us a clear, tangible, short-term reward. So you work really hard to increase your get a raise or get a bonus or get a promotion. But then there's the other things that it's not so clear and it's much more longer term and you're not sure if your investment's going to pay off. Things like developing relationships with a significant other, you know, raising good children, maintaining your personal friendships. These things, they're not quite so clear and the returns are kind of way off into the distance. So they kind of get forgotten about. If you're not intentional, you just think, oh, it's okay if I cancel that dinner with my mates and I go work overtime instead. Or if you think, oh, I don't, I, we had this family holiday plan, but there's this big opportunity. We're about to make a big acquisition at work. I'm going to have to cancel the family holiday. The kids, they'll understand because I'll get a big bonus at the end and I can share that with them later. Yeah, you're doing it for the family the whole way through, aren't you? You're doing it for them, doing it for them. That's what you say anyway, That's what yeah. you're telling yourself. Um, and it can be all too easy to have this default as your approach. Uh, as an example here of a bloke called Steve, must be Matthew Clay, he said that uh, he'd always wanted to own and operate his own business because he'd always had opportunities to work for someone else and learn from self, someone else in his profession and he wanted to attract the compensation to be the, his own boss um, and it's been his whole dream. So in order to fulfill this dream, it meant long hours at work to build his own firm. Now, his family and friends were understanding. I mean, mm. it was his dream. He's got finite time on the planet. Um, no one else was going to do it for him. And it was on him to really provide for his family by making these decisions. Yeah, and it kind of makes sense. It, your mates will say, yeah, that's all right, mate. Go, go for it. Um, Steve's wife says, you know, that's okay, Steve. Oh, yeah, you can work. I'll look after the kids tonight. There's uh, an unfortunate twist coming here because his company killed it. But the problem was just as his company was taken off, his marriage fell apart. Mm. When he needed the support of his siblings, his friends, um, they were, again, you know, the old cats in the cradle, they were probably a bit too busy because he neglected them. He didn't really have that social capital with them to lean on. He'd been putting all his time, all his resources into building this company, which was killing it, but he hadn't invested in all those other things. Yeah, out of all the allocation of resources, he invested purely in this business, which is, you know, he says he's did it as a roundabout way for everyone else. So the company was killing it because that's where his resources went. But as you said there, I show the social capital kind of dropped through the floor and he ended up obviously uh, moving out of his home and he was super successful. He had a beautiful home and everything like that, but he only got to see his kids every couple of weeks. They had to leave their friends in their home and move in with their dad with some like some sort of Spartan apartment, which was amazing. They'd go out for dinner, they'd go and see a movie, but it soon lost its charm mm. seeing the dad every two weeks. And so from the very start, he had a fun, loving family who was probably comfortable in their income. Steve, he ended up mm. loaded and rich without a family. That's I mean, right. what's, uh, what's out of those two, what's a better decision? Yeah, Clay, bit of a rhetorical question with the title of the book. <laughs> How will you measure your life? Yeah. Steve measured it by one thing, but probably probably cooked it. Well, that's probably the thing. If if Steve says, you know what, my goal, I just want to become as rich as possible, make a shitload of money, have a massive company. If that was how he measured his life, that's a big tick. But Steve was saying, you know what, I want to build this company so that I can have free time, 
to then play with my kids that I can make a lot of money so I can take them on a nice fancy family holiday. I can buy them all the cool gadgets and stuff. So he's measuring his life by having actually a tight knit family unit. The problem was the strategy that he employed to get to that end goal actually kind of killed that end goal in the first place. You could have realized if, you know what, if your goal is to have a tight knit family, maybe you should invest a few resources into your family. Yeah. Not not thinking just I'll invest all in business and then later I'll come back and look after the family. Well, that's just asking that question. I mean, he probably didn't ask that question. How will you measure your life sort of from the end in, you know, beginning from the end in mind. Probably from that perspective, you would say, oh, I want a family. I want my kids to, you know, at least not hate me. Um, so if you had that all together from the start, your probably allocation of resources would be a little bit different because there's so much more to life than your career. I mean, the person you are at work and the amount of time you spend there, the end of the day, it is going to impact the person you are outside of work and the relationships you have outside of work as well. So high achievers focus a great deal on just only on the the work part of the equation and not the other part. That brings to mind something that used to come up all the time on the podcast. It doesn't come up for a while. The old Mexican fisherman. You know, the Mexican fisherman is sitting back, chilling, probably sipping on a beer and then he... uh, the American tourist comes over and says, oh, what's going on here? You're killing it. You could make this massive company. Um, but then by the end, of the I think everyone knows the Mexican fisherman story. Yeah. <laughs> by the end, it plays out. He's like, you know, you can sell this massive company, make a shitload of money. Then you can just sit back and drink beer and smoke ciggies and fish for fish and you'll be happy. He's like, man, I'm already doing it. So you've got to think about what's the end goal and what's going to get you to that end goal. Well, that's, well, that's uh, perfect. It links very well because like at the very start, I'm going to go and build this awesome business just so my family loves me. We can spend time together and uh, you know be free from everything. And then they go off and start a business and everything like that. And at the very start, the whole point of that story is, all right, you've already got that exactly, fun-loving yeah. family. You just need to spend the resources on that. Yeah, I think the big trap that everybody falls into is uh, what Clayton says, sequencing of life investments. You think, you know, this period of my life, this is all about building my career. So for 10 years, I'm going to work really, really hard on my career. And then after that, my career will be settled. Then I can spend the next 20 years working really, really hard on my personal relationships. It doesn't work like that. You got to be doing both at the same time. If you get to the point of uh, you might work really hard for 10 years and then say, cool, I'll call up my mates to go and uh, play around a golf, all of a sudden they're not taking your phone calls because you haven't spoken to them for 10 years. Wishing for a certain type of family and having a certain family, very two different things. Like we've been saying, uh, there is an opportunity to step back and actually try and design the type of family life that we want. And of course, a big part of that is how we are as parents. As parents, uh, it says we, I don't know if we, but you know, parents in general, you know, they share a common worry that one day their children are going to be faced with a tough decision. The problem is the parents are going to be there to help them decide. Maybe they're going to get on a plane and go traveling around the world and they're going to be in a far-flung country where the parent can't tell them uh, what's right and what's wrong or maybe they are in college, they've got an exam, they've got an opportunity to cheat on the test to bump up their marks. Uh, maybe they're going to face a decision whether to be to choose to be kind to a complete stranger or to uh, give them a slap in the face, metaphorically. They're all the things that uh, your children are going to face and you're not going to be there to help them make the decisions. It's very much like a company. with If you're an employee, someone under you, there's going to be times when they're out on their own and you're not able to micromanage. And the thing that's going to actually guide them in making the best decisions is, of course, culture because 
culture is like the common goals that you might have a company, but also as a family that, that make you successful. And if it's formed properly, people are going to autonomously do what they need to do and they know what the values are to make, make things successful because a culture is a unique combination of processes and priorities. And if your kids have got these things, I mean, next time they're in uh, Egypt and they're offered a cocaine to go on a bender with the, the chariot riders, they might decline and do a flat no, or they might say yes and, and be better <laughs> off for it. <laughs> I don't know which was the correct decision there. Uh, but it, it probably sounds a bit weird to say, oh, yeah, we're building our, our family culture. Um, but it's also like companies. Companies, I think the companies who talk about building company culture don't build a good culture. They build the wankiest it's ones. Definitely. It's the, the unspoken, uh, the unwritten rules, the, the culture... Uh, that doesn't need to be talked about is what we're talking about here. That uh, a family, as a family, much like as a uh, successful company, you can create a family culture that then is that underlying, you know, those core values that then dictate the decisions. So parents have a big job here uh, to build that culture uh, in their family or have a culture that's non-existent because there's always going to be a, a desire to really overshadow the child in developing their processes and if you do so, you know, you might feel good as a parent, but if you're overshadowing too much and micromanaging, then the child's probably not going to be off, you know, able to make their own decisions. Yeah, the, a parent often thinks that it's their job to develop the child, uh, but there's probably a different uh, meta job here. And it's really allowing your child to develop the skill to develop better skills, if that makes sense. So it's not your job to go out there and develop all of your kids' skills. The most important thing for you to do is develop within them the ability to develop their own skills. How can you give them the knowledge that allows them to develop deeper knowledge? How can you give them experiences to help them learn from their own experiences? So it's all really about not doing it for them, but just kind of clearing the path and building the meta skills that allow them to then develop on their own. There's different schools of experience here because if you're going to let your child develop on their own and they're you know, got the school project and in year three and they're trying to make origami out of paper and they just pulled out a piece and you just know it looks horrible and they're going to bring it to school next day and get laughed at. I mean, you could just go out and make it your own for them go, hey, take this to school, Jimmy. You're going to get a pat on the back from the teacher. Or you can let them go out there and fail and stuff up and actually learn from the school of life because that is what life is about. But from a young age, many of our children who participate in sports and do these sorts of things. We're giving them medals and trophies and ribbons at the end of the season just for participating, even if they suck. Because at the end of the day, some are gonna, they're probably going to suck at something and uh, sooner or later, they're going to find out. So learning from the school of life is actually letting the, the universe actually poke and prod them and, and learn from experience. That's right. There's that, that version of the origami in year three. The moment, maybe as they progress through school, maybe they get to year eight or year nine, things start getting a little bit more serious. All of a sudden, they've got a big essay that's due that makes up a big chunk of their, their semester's grades. And sitting around the dinner table one night, your kid announces that uh, this big essay, it's due the next day. It's a massive part of my grade, but I haven't started it yet. There's going to be a little bit of panic around the table. And there's going to be a few things that flash through your mind. The parent might say, don't worry, little Jimmy, I'll do it for you. At least you can get uh, get a good night's sleep. You can rest up for whatever problems are going to happen. You're going to get a good grade because uh, I'm a much better than you are. So, yeah. so your, your, you piece so, of shit, you? your piece of shit essay that you would have got a 4 out of 10, I'm going to get a 12 out of 10. Um, 
and you you might think that's my job as a parent is to help my kid get the best grades they possibly can. That's mm. that's wrong. That's, <laughs> that's very bad. Well, how do you how do you think? You know what's going to happen next time your mm. child is laid on a project? Yeah, or even next time they get given a project, they know exactly what to do. Do nothing. Night before, say, parent, help me out here. <laughs> Bang, hundred <laughs> percent. That's it. That's it. Well, the braver decision here is for sort of let the child have a more difficult but more valuable course in life and that is allow the child to see the consequences of neglecting that important assignment. All right, next time it happens either or that mm. night it happens either, they're going to have to stay up on their own and pull it off somehow and just see what happens or they fail to complete it and they get an F the next day and they get mm. laughed at by the teacher and it might be painful for you as a as a parent watching your child fail and next time you catch up with the other parents for coffee and you're all measuring your kid's success, you're just saying how much Jimmy sucks at school, that's not going to be fun either. It's going to be tough short term, but it's going to be much better long term. They're going to learn from that mistake. They're going to learn that, okay, next time we're going to have to get started earlier or they're going to learn that, you know what, I better get prepared and I better do the right things here or uh, whatever it is, they're actually going to learn for themselves rather than you just serving up on a silver platter a perfect 10 out of 10 essay. Mate, after reading this book, I uh, went on a family holiday with uh, with my brother and uh, and my sister-in-law and went away with Ruby. So Ruby's like four years old and uh, morning one, I went on, you know, raced her and I lost. But I knew this book. I can't just keep her. What do you mean you lost in a race? Deliberately let her girl. loss. I let her oh. win. I let her win. And she always gets, she always wins. The next day, though, <laughs> I, I ran, I ran, I, I let her think she was going to win, and I just, I kicked her ass. <laughs> I just like came home strong, and then the whole, her face at me, I've never seen anything like it. She was just greasing me for hours and hours and hours. But that was a school of That's life. That's good, though. That's good. Imagine if she went through her whole life thinking that she can beat anybody that she races against. Well, sooner or later, she is. So she's it's not going to be out it's either. Going to come she's going to have down. to work harder. I know Gary Vaynerchuk, one of your favorite uh, people, <laughs> talks about how he never lets his kids beat him at basketball or chess or anything. He always demolishes them. He's shooting, doing slam dunks over the, his 11-year-old daughter's head and stuff like that. <laughs> so <laughs> It's a bit too far from <laughs> the G-man. But it's, it's one of those things. We should consciously think about what abilities we want our child to develop and what experiences are going to actually get them there. to loop back to the title how will you measure your life that's really the book in book in a nutshell isn't it that you got to work out what metrics are you going to optimize for if you don't intentionally choose what you're going to measure your life by you're going to find that you're going to be probably shooting for the wrong types of goals you're going to go for the short-term shiny objects rather than building the long-term true satisfaction in the long run clarity about your own purpose is going to really trump the knowledge of 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 knowing you've put money in the bank account or anything like that if you take the time to look back on it take a step back and ask yourself these questions it's probably going to be the most important thing that you'll ever do and find the most important things you've ever learned 